Whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you're producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. A story is more authentic if you're passionate about it. And I knew I could not sell something I wasn't passionate about. I had to be doing something that made a difference. And maybe people have different definitions of social responsibility, but that was always a big drive for me. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out knocked out so your only choice should be go focus on what you can control 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 hi everyone and welcome to the Kara golden show join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders we'll talk with founders entrepreneurs ceos and really some of the most interesting people of our time can't wait to get started let's go let's go Hi, everybody. It's Kara from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here, Lindsay Hoops, who is the proprietor of Hoops Wine. Welcome, welcome. Super excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, for reaching out, and for taking an interest in the story. It's just, it's so fun to see, I think, you know, entrepreneurs in the beverage space hearing about what we're doing and interested. I mean, that's giving me a lot of passion. So yeah, no, absolutely. I'm super, super excited about it. So just a little bit about Lindsay's unique background and how she sort of got here and what she's doing for those of you who aren't following me on LinkedIn, where I 
you know, was fangirling her saying like, this is so cool. I love it. Just a little bit of her background. She's developed being an in-depth perspective of the wine growing world. Not really that surprised because she's become one of the youngest and one of the few female winery leaders in Napa Valley. And just overall, I think she's just really thinking differently, which as everybody knows is, is really what I believe is kind of core to actually doing things differently. Sometimes the best ideas are really happening when you don't have the experience, you're thinking differently about things and could this actually be done? So very, very cool what she's up to. But before leading Hoops Wine, she spent many years as San Francisco's assistant district attorney. Everybody, like, listen to this. You can actually go and move from being a a lawyer and a somebody in a government role into finding your passion and doing what you're meant to be. We're going to hear about Lindsay's journey along that. But definitely, she's she's now leading her family's multi-generational business. And she's just, like I said, added a whole new twist to it, which you have to keep listening right now to kind of hear a little bit more about this. But thank you so much, Lindsay. I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Yeah, super, super great. So take us back to the beginning. So you grew up on the vineyard. Were you living in San Francisco? And then you guys had a a vineyard or were you actually like literally up there most of the time? Well, you know, that's a tough one actually. So my mother had a career and she was in design and my father was in the military based at the Presidio in San Francisco. And he got so sick of the fog, retired out. It's funny because I think about it. He was in the military just before the Presidio. He was in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So my life could have been phenomenally different. For him, it was a farming community. So one farming community to the next, but obviously very different crops. So he got sick of the fog, decided to move to closer to his roots in terms of an ag community. We moved up to Napa and purchased land and coincidentally lived next door to a single mother who had a lot of land unmaintained, unplanted, and she did not want to manage it. And so she asked my father, would you be willing to take this off my hands So at the time, Yauntville and Oakville was sort of considered the other side of the tracks. It's very difficult to imagine. And Napa as a wine growing region was actually not really, I mean, it was starting to happen and it was very much on that kind of launching point, but a lot of Napa was still planted to prunes and other crops. And so we decided to get back into farming. My father had a history of cotton farming. And so he sort of literally surveyed what we could grow there, what people thought was going to be the next big thing. And, you know, it was a bunch of farmers sitting around saying, yeah, maybe I'll get into this wine grape thing. And so we planted grapes by accident, you know, obviously a little bit of foresight into how the world was changing. And I commuted back and forth with my mother because the community was still very much evolving. And so schools and, you know, a number of the other amenities, jobs for her weren't necessarily available in Napa. We did not have a culinary scene. We didn't have a design sort of, you know, environment by any stretch of the imagination. People weren't moving to Napa, building homes, building second homes. So a lot has changed in 40 years, but I spent a lot of my life in San Francisco and I consider myself a a local napkin as well. I've been here for 40 years, which is odd to say, but I tend to be on the older side of the community members up here. <laughs> so Wild. So you went to law school. 
Yeah. And you like, did you always want to be a lawyer? Was that kind of what you were and ultimately work in government or what was sort of your thinking there? Yeah, I knew. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including 
health as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. I did not want to be a farmer, I guess, as my father would put it when I was growing up. I just felt like I wanted to be in an active, dynamic place. And for me, you know, maybe it was just because it was what my father did. I was a recalcitrant teenager. I have no idea, but I just, I wanted out, you know, wanted to the big city. And so I felt a calling to something else, but law wasn't necessarily the most obvious next step. I wanted to be a spy. And so when I went to college, I went to Georgetown, I studied a number of different languages, I applied for all of the agencies that I thought would help me get into some sort of counter surveillance or intelligence. And ultimately, I did not get the job. And so based on the feedback I received from a number of the employers, they essentially said, look, you know, one of the things about spies, and, you know, of course, they don't call them spies, but special agents or any of that is that they really need to blend in. It's not that they're not smart. It's not that on paper you don't have the right background. It's just that we need people who sort of blend into the environment and don't stand out and don't have anything really particularly unusual or charismatic about them. Ultimately, we want people to forget them. That's the whole point. And so I realized that that was never going to be my personality. I loved to communicate, speak in public, convey, you know, thoughts, opinions, persuade people And so that was not going to be the, I guess, job for me. So I ended up deciding that law would be an opportunity for me to make changes and to do a lot of the strategy and intelligence that I liked, but ultimately sort of get action at the, you know, sort of, I guess, the public opinion level. And so I started, I wanted to be a district attorney. I wanted to be in court. I didn't just want to be a lawyer. I knew very much that I wanted that job because I passionately believe in sort of taking cases that I believed in, having the discretion to dismiss cases and make institutional change from inside. And I didn't see that as an opportunity everywhere. You know, working for the government is such a powerful opportunity to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you have the right people in place to work from within the system to make change, then you can do so much. And I learned a lot of that from my boss who happened to be Kamala Harris. And it's so interesting today to kind of see 
where my career might have gone if I'd stayed there, <laughs> potentially. So interesting. Yeah, it's bizarre, you know, just because when she hired me, I knew she was very impressive and, you know, was was doing a lot of great for San Francisco. I had no idea that she was going to be moving on to having a name and recognition across the country or the world. So it's been an honor to kind of see, you know, I guess how I was able to help her in some way, shape or form, make some trailblazing moves in her career too. If I did, I don't know. <laughs> That's wild. I, I was actually, I met with her two years ago now in Washington. I'm working on a huge initiative around clean water. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned a ton about water over the last 15 years since I started Hint. And so I was going and chatting with a few different people in Washington, which was really, really interesting. She was super supportive. So we're actually working on a something with, I don't know if you ever met Congresswoman Jackie Spear, but yeah. we're I'm working on something with Jackie right now that hopefully takes this initiative before Congress and we're trying to get an ingredient called PFAS, which you're probably familiar with in the water supply. That is a very dangerous thing that is starting to get more and more attention, but it's something that is known as a, it's actually the FDA tracks it in meat and also in dairy, but for some reason they don't actually test it in the water supply, Mm -hmm. which is really crazy. And so so I've learned a lot about it because we have eight different plants throughout the U.S. And, you know, we take all of the lead and, you know, bromine and all this stuff out and, and PFAS out of the water supply. But it's uh, I started thinking about like, what about people who are, you know, turning on their faucet at home and especially in California when where we're not testing for this. So anyway, it's been something I've been working on for a while And again, everybody's really in support, but it's crazy that I'm actually like a CEO of a beverage company and not a lobbyist, not, you know, not like anything other than, you know, a consumer who is caring about, you know, I know what I see in all different parts of the country. And and I'm like, this has to change. I mean, this is not, this is not okay that we're, so anyway, it was a, Interesting conversation along the way, but how did you get back to the winery? How did you end up getting pulled in that direction? Well, I always thought at some point I would end up back in Napa Valley and working with my family because I was very proud of what my father had done. He actually had one of the only vineyards that survived the phylloxera outbreak and he invented actually some farming equipment that's been very instrumental in sort of the agricultural world and also ended up having a derivative impact in the material handling world, ironically. So, you know, I think he's always been a contributor to the community that he was a part of. And so I wanted to somehow carry on that legacy. I think for me, he didn't want me to just end up in agriculture unless I had a personal direction towards it because it's a very difficult business And we are always beholden to Mother Nature. Obviously, 2017 and 2020 gave me my first personal responsibility as the owner and next generation proprietor of our family business. But that's always something that we have to take into consideration with farming. And so people think of wine as this luxury product. But one of our jobs as storytellers and in the wine business specifically I think is that we have to remind people that it is a luxury product 
but it begins with the grapes. And my day is so bizarrely varied from looking at soil samples, testing for nematodes, looking at, you know, diseases that might affect wood and leaves on the viticultural side, thinking about science and how we can improve and, you know, make our wines, which is a very intensive chemical process, not because we're adding anything, but it's a natural chemical change and alteration mm-hmm. from fruit to wine. And the processing is very scientific. And then we're in this space of designing a brand that conveys a message and an emotional connection and sits in the luxury world because we're Napa. So it spans all of these bizarrely different aspects, which makes it very interesting. But it's a tough, you know, that's a tough job. It's tough to have the skill set to cover all of those things. And just because you're a great winemaker doesn't mean you can sell it. And there were a couple of things my dad always taught me. You, you know, you have to grow good grapes to make good wine. And, you know, I mean, you have to be nimble and, and comfortable with change because it's a dynamic industry. And so I was interested in those things, but I think he wanted to make sure that I was willing to take on that challenge. And so ultimately I came home when my father started making wine. We were farmers my entire childhood and we grew grapes for other people. And we ended up starting to make wine ultimately when I was in college. So I was really not a part of that decision and that transition. And of course, at that point, I was like, oh, this is a lot sexier than farming in my head. And so I rushed home right after I graduated and I didn't get the job as a spy. And I said, look, you know, I am ready to report to duty. And he was like, why would I hire you? You have no work experience. And by the way, you made the biggest mistake ever. Thanks, dad. Right? Yeah. (laughs) I really appreciate it today. We had our moments, you know, no family business is easy. And I was an only child in a largely, you know, male dominated industry. And I couldn't tell if he was pushing me away because he didn't think I was qualified or he wasn't, you know, who knows? I mean, it was just, it's always difficult to sort of figure out the transition in a multi-generational family business. You know, so I said, I wanted to make wine. He said, why don't you go see what the wine industry is really like? Because what we do here in Napa is not necessarily demonstrative of what the world of wine is. It is a international industry. And Napa only produces 0.04% of the wine that is sold throughout the world. So extraordinarily small, but it was my universe. And so he wanted me to understand if you want to actually make waves, understand the business, build the business, put your own fingerprint on it. You can't only see the world from the eyes of someone who's grown up in Napa. And so go try out a much larger company and see what you think. And so I worked for E&J Gallo, another family business, but extraordinarily different in size and sort of organization. You know, I learned an incredible amount. But what I learned was that I wanted to tell our family story. Ultimately, I was passionate about what we did. Not that what they do is not fantastic, but what we did was what I was connected to emotionally. And I think to your point, when you were discussing why is it you making change in water and not a lobbyist, it's because you are passionate about it. They are paid to do that, right? And so for me, a story is more authentic if you're passionate about it. And I knew I could not sell something I wasn't passionate about. It had to have a sense of place, a sense of responsibility. I had to be doing something that made a difference. And maybe people have different definitions of social responsibility, but that was always a big drive for me. I needed to be doing something I believed in 
And I don't discredit people who, you know, build things that are, you know, let's say less or I don't know, maybe are more superficially applicable to the world. But and wine is not being a DA. I'm not changing. I'm not finding the cure to anything. But I will say that what I love about it is that you are actually helping people celebrate a lot of very important moments in their life and experience luxury in a, you know, in so many different settings. And that actually gives people a lot of comfort. And ironically, COVID has given me the opportunity to see that in full effect, because one of the few ways that people are still connecting with people, that people are enjoying life is by bringing some of these elements of luxury home. And so wine is still connected to people, dinner, sharing moments with their family and building those experiences. And so I'm still a part of that. And we're still creating that in a more real sense today. So, you know, it might seem far-fetched to some people, but I think what was really important to me is that I needed to be part of a business within the wine industry that I believed in. And what better business than telling our family story, ultimately. I love it. That's so cool. So the way that we connected was I read a story about the smoke-tainted grapes and what you were doing with them. So did this actually start in 2017 after the the fires? Or when did this actually start? And where did this idea come from? Yeah, so in 2017, we obviously experienced a spate of wildfires as we did most recently in 2020. And what was different about the fires in 2017 is that most people were not affected in the wine industry. Obviously, there was devastation, but it happened so much later in the harvest cycle that fewer vineyards were affected, fewer wines, grapes were affected, and you didn't see the destruction that you saw in 2020. So I think that a lot of people don't remember necessarily that there was a huge impact to the industry in 17, it was much smaller. And a lot of the bigger names that end up in people's inboxes or that they see in the grocery stores, you know, didn't really make comments about it because they weren't affected. And so it wasn't Mm -hmm. in the matter of public opinion at the time. And so it was new to Napa. We're certainly not the first area to experience wildfires. They had them in Australia. They've had them in the United States. But in our collective experience here in Napa, my father's been growing grapes for, you know, 40 years, we had never seen or understood how to approach grapes that had been exposed to smoke taint. All Mm -hmm. that to say that we have phenomenal resources in UC Davis and the viticulture and enology programs there to help us take learnings from all over the world. But at the time we were sort of, you know, it was chaotic. The fires broke out and we said, okay, what do we do? But it wasn't such a big issue that I was a little bit alone in making decisions. We took tests of our grapes and based on what we were able to test for and what we understood at the time, we were advised that our grapes by a third party neutral testing agency were suitable. They did not show any unfortunate signs of undesirable smoke taint. And I can explain a little bit more about that if you're interested, but essentially we did test and our grapes came back negative for taste profiles that would not sort of be pleasant in ultra premium quality wine. And so we started producing wine the way that we would in any other vintage. We 
purchased extraordinarily expensive wine barrels from France. We, you know, proceeded along the two-year production cycle that we would for exceptional Napa Valley wine, which is what our family does. And in December of 2018, we started to notice some elements of ash, but it wasn't necessarily unpleasant. It was a little bit more sort of, oh, this is different. And it wasn't something that we'd ever seen in our grapes before. And we started testing again. And we started to see higher signs of some of these compounds associated with smoke contamination, if you want to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, in May of 2019, when we were preparing to bottle the vintage, we decided there is no way that we were going to put our name. The wine deteriorated very quickly, and it tasted like ashtray. And it sort of came on as though it were out of nowhere, really. I mean, it was all of a sudden, it was not drinkable and not usable. And in many cases, we tried to dilute it, see if other people wanted to purchase it because they had much larger production and see if there was something they could do. We looked into reverse osmosis to see if we could essentially remove and strip the smoke characteristics. But what we realized is we would also strip all of the high quality characteristics that still were present in the wine. Mm -hmm. So we were going to essentially neutralize the wine, but that wasn't going to give us the product we were excited about. And so, you know, it's, it's poetry in a bottle, right? I mean, it tells the story of the vineyard. And if you take everything out of it, it's not what you wanted it to be. So I, you know, effectively reached out to our insurance company and I said, we tested for this. We've done everything that we would have done in terms of quality protocols throughout processing. And we now have something there's no way we can use. And we didn't know before we started this, you know, production process that we were going to end up here. We honestly thought that we had sort of escaped the problem. And so I started embarking down an insurance avenue where, you know, we're looking at our policies and saying, okay, where does this fit? Because the exposure happened in the field. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, but what we know is that you know, it's sort of like a toxic tort, if you will. It's like you get exposed asbestos maybe in the 70s before anybody knows it's a problem, but stuff happens along throughout the way. medical care along the way that ends up making it a health problem. And it was almost the same thing here where what we did in the process was what we needed to do to make wine, but these compounds are active. Hmm. You know, they're called volatile phenols. And so different levels of fermentation from sugar to alcohol or from fruit acid to dairy acid, which are all necessary to ultimately make wine skin contact. They all essentially caused these compounds to activate in some way. If you think about it, when you have a glass of wine and you introduce it to oxygen, you get much more out of the flavor in that wine. You know, that's why you use glasses with bowls, beautiful bowls, because That way you're kind of opening up the flavor profiles Mm -hmm. as well as the olfactory. And so ultimately, you know, we couldn't convince our insurance company. I still don't think they're right. But ultimately, you know, I was stuck with millions of dollars worth of inventory that I couldn't use. So you had actually bottled it. We did bottle. We were just about to bottle. And I bottled because I wasn't going to be able to sell it as wine. Yeah. There's no way that I would, I mean, even if I yeah. bottled it and sold it to somebody else, that wouldn't feel very honest no. to me. Was this all of your crops yeah. too? 
everything crops, everything purchased. And I mean, to give a little bit of personal context, because I think it tells a little bit about sort of the situation I was in. I mean, my mother had just died a week later. My father almost passed away. My husband was unemployed and I was pregnant and had two kids under three. Right. So I was supporting our family. I've now, you know, walked through the dark forest, if you will, on a personal level. And then all of a sudden our family business, which essentially is not just a luxury or a trophy item for us. I mean, it was like how we eat and we had no backup is gone. And, you know, this is of course, after, I mean, two years of wildfire. So we were having a community decline in terms of hospitality, consumption up here, visitation to Napa as well. So any other revenue stream was depressed as well. And, you know, this is all before COVID too. So, you know, it's been a couple interesting three years, but I essentially hit a wall and I was very determined to find a solution. I think of myself as extraordinarily creative, but I actually honestly think at the time I recall feeling like it was it. I mean, I lost our family business and, you know, there was nothing we could do and it was millions of dollars way over my head. And so I went, of course, as angels appear, you know, I went to Kentucky. It was a pre-planned trip and we were actually launching a book about women in wine country and we were going to the Kentucky Derby. And I was like, why am I going? This is like, I am not in the mood to be happy and pretend like the wine lifestyle is fabulous and amazing all the time. And we were presenting the book at a winemaker, a tastemaker's dinner, essentially at Castle and Key Distillery in Frankfort, Kentucky. And there were five winemakers. The master distiller, who happened to be a female, was sponsoring the event and actually hosting it. So she was showcasing her gin and they had not released their bourbon yet, but I got to know her. We were sitting across the table and I said, you know, I'm actually kind of jokingly I am a huge Scotch fan. I love Scotch. And I lived in Ireland for three years. I wouldn't always disclose this to the Irish, but I love Scotch. But that's where I was introduced. I love Irish whiskey too. I have to imagine that there's something we can do with wine that has been exposed to smoke. Yeah, smoky. Yeah. I mean, definitely there's things that are being done outside of wine that have that smoky characteristic. And that's the difference between scotch and any other sort of smoke enhanced product is that scotch is smoked before it's distilled. And, you know, most people introduce smoke Mm. through barrel aging. So if you get a smoky bourbon or something like that, the smoke actually is in the inside of the barrel. And that's the difference that everybody thought, well, this has been smoked before. So it's not going to be usable because, you know, it wasn't controlled smoking. It wasn't, you know, sort of designed to be smoky. And I was like, wait a minute, scotch is the same thing. You actually literally roast and toast the barley or whatever you're putting into it. So we were sitting around and she was like, that's actually a really cool idea. And one of the things that drives Marianne that I love, I mean, she was crying when she was presenting the gin and I was like, I love this girl because she's so passionate about her product. Right. So she loves the R and D component and trying new things. And yes, she's been featured as the sort of queen of bourbon 
She was the first female master distiller post-prohibition in Kentucky. She is not limited to bourbon. I mean, she's just, she's a trailblazer. She will try things. She will enter industries that, you know, aren't necessarily the most obvious industry. She's a chemical engineer and she's fascinated by the science, but also creating mm-hmm. new things and cool things because she's an engineer. And so we got to talking and she's like, let's try it. I didn't know where it was going to go, but you have to pay to get rid of alcohol. So I was like, I'm not paying any more. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not going to pay to throw this away. We're going to find a solution. And so ultimately we got together, we started distilling the product. And what we realized is that what makes Napa so amazing for wine makes Napa so amazing for this product because the substrate mm-hmm. is such high quality. And so, you know, as my dad told me, what you put in, you get out. So you're a farmer first, you grow good grapes, you make good wine, you grow crap grapes, you make crap wine. Ultimately, the same is true here, that the quality was great, it just had been exposed to smoke. And so as we distilled it out, we were unbelievably floored by the quality of the product. And, you know, I was hoping, okay, let's make something, you know, I mean, sort of like the COVID response, let's, you know, see if we can salvage it for hand sanitizer, (laughs) something like that. But it turned out that it was actually more impressive than we even imagined. And so we got excited about distilling different varietals, different, you know, Cabernet, Rosé, and all of the wines that we had made, we distilled as separate products. We started aging them in different barrels and ultimately came up with a product that, you know, is kind of the cognac of Napa, if you will. It's like, if you think about it, it's the highest possible quality of wine that is then distilled into brandy, more or less. I love it. And no one's doing this. That's amazing. Well, and it was funny because so many people in the beverage industry, I mean, this is where I felt like we had finally really, you know, been onto something, is that people who've been in the industry, some of the leaders who developed Mezcal into what it is today, all of a sudden were like, whoa, why didn't we think of that? And I was like, okay, if they're impressed... Because so many, you know, beverage introductions are mm-hmm. marketing twists, clean wine, it doesn't mean anything. But when people who were, you know, had legitimate, authentic histories in the beverage space were interested in the project, that's when I was like, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And and for me, you know, as any entrepreneur, I had to, I was a little bit crazy because, of course, we're continuing to invest in a product that most people think is trash, (laughs) you know, okay, how much more money do I really want to put into this before I call it quits? And as a business owner, you know, I mean, there are those moments at the T-junction where you're like, okay, is it time or do I keep going? Do I believe in it enough? And her interest in the project and then some of these sort of outside enthusiasts who were like, you know, I don't know why it wouldn't work. I mean, I love it. That's so great. So it's bottled, it's ready. It's like, it's, no, so not quite yet. So when will we be able to see it? Yeah, so we are still finalizing. We have to barrel age everything for two years. So okay. we did the wine production aging on the front end, which is not required. But again, we did it because we thought we were making wine. And now we have to to be able to call it brandy or anything else and actually legally sell it. We have to barrel age it for a full two years. So at the end of 2021, we will be able to release the final blends. But I think the reason that we started talking about the product was in 2020, the wildfires 
exploded again. Mm-hmm. And you would think that people learned from 2017, but for most people weren't actually affected in 2017. And so people didn't have crop insurance. A lot of people hadn't gone through this whole adventure that I went through. And so my goal in telling the story at that time was I have a lot of neighbors who have uninsured groups. And I felt like I could provide some glimmer of opportunity, potentially. We haven't released the product. So how it's going to be received is a little bit yet to be known. But Mm -hmm. I offered to take in grapes that were uninsured and had been exposed to smoke with an opportunity for a profit share for the uninsured growers in Napa. It's not an easy pivot. I mean, not everybody has a master distiller on staff. Not everybody has the know-how to distill a high quality product. I mean, we had, you know, a great sort of combination of factors that, you know, I guess I'm thankful for. Yes, we found it, we made it happen, but it's not a super easy pivot, but we were able to provide this story as I think hope, you know, in Napa, COVID has affected everybody. And then to have another series of wildfires during COVID when things were just starting to open up has really sort of depressed the community. And so this was one of those, we can turn disaster into some possible benefit. And I wanted to be part of that story because everyone needs something to look forward to right now. No, absolutely. And so obviously you're you're actually recording from your vineyard. So how did you fare through these last set of fires? So we, I mean, we did lose our entire harvest. And obviously I would say that, you know. So scary. Yeah. I mean, it remains to be seen how much of the valley is going to be affected ultimately or how much of the vintage, I should say, because the valley is a large place. People forget that. And you know, just because there were fires doesn't mean everybody has made a bad wine this year. Mm -hmm. They're going to proceed. But one of the amazing points of strength that I was able to take into this harvest is, well, I have an alternative. (laughs) So I can just, you know, convert all of this into brandy. I mean, I think this project has given me so much hope because I, I can help my neighbors. I can potentially change the industry in terms of understanding what alternatives are if we do continue to experience wildfires. And then for me, you know, it's a great diversification. If we have fires, I I would hate to think that this is going to be as regular as it has been, but if it is, you know, we can make wine in some years and we can make brandy in other years. And it's going to allow us to remain economically viable despite climate change. And I don't say that as a you know, my term of climate change is not necessarily politically motivated, although I will say that as a farmer, I can tell you things are different. (laughs) My father did not experience these fires and our harvests are less predictable. So for me, I have to be able to find a way to innovate when I can't control mother nature. And this is my generation's contribution. My father's generation was pivoting with what they were planting, rootstocks, that kind of thing. So it's the same I guess, catalyst, mother nature, but it's just a different outcome. So interesting. So another thing that you shared with me, the nonprofit Save the Family Farms, can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. So a lot of people don't realize that Napa at its core is still small family farms, multi-generational farms. A lot of people also don't realize that the farmers 
are not necessarily the winemakers or the larger corporate wine brands that they're familiar with. And Mm -hmm. these fires affect growers, not necessarily winemakers. So I'm lucky I'm vertically integrated. So, you know, I'm my own consumer of my grapes, but for a lot of growers, they've lost revenue and there's nothing they can do with them. They can't even turn Mm -hmm. them into brandy because they don't have the licenses to process them. If you can believe Mm -hmm. it. So they just throw them on the ground, literally. But economic viability has been a much larger problem for small family farms in Napa for a while because we are not allowed to have tours and tastings on our farms. A lot of these small family farms do not have the financial resources to build their own winery. So that's why they either sell grapes or they produce at a custom crush facility, which is like Hmm. a co-op kitchen, like many, you know, restaurants starting up. Yeah. And so... What Napa has is a a distinct layer of regulation that makes it cost prohibitive for these small farms to transfer into tours and tastings. And so people think, oh, well, I've never heard of these wines. It's because you can't visit legally. But the problem for us is that most of us sell through restaurants, which are closed because of COVID. A lot of us sell, you know, in events where people find us, which have all been disbanded essentially. And we're losing traction because people are moving away from Napa. I think the consumer now is wanting that more authentic family experience. And some people think that Napa has been too corporatized and that, you know, they want to move to these smaller, more upstart burgeoning areas of wine production where they can meet the growers, meet the family. And that all exists in Napa. We just aren't allowed to invite you to our homes. And so I am trying to create that path of sort of, I don't know, our, like economic viability through decreasing regulation. And for all people, I mean, as a government agent, you know, my dad is always like, well, do you like regulation or don't you like regulation? I'm like, I like smart regulation that has a purpose. And I think that it's important. What worked in 1990 does not necessarily work today. I mean, regardless of industry. Right. And Mm -hmm. so we have to constantly look at what regulation we have and the purpose so that we make sure it's still serving a purpose and achieving the best results in any community. And in Napa, I think the Agricultural Preserve was a fabulous, fabulous initiative. It has kept Napa from converting into Silicon Valley in terms of development, and it's kept it an agricultural community. The problem is, is that there are unintended consequences. Nobody knew in 1990 that what they wrote meant small farms wouldn't be able to survive in 2020. So that's okay. So interesting. We continue to, you know, change it. Well, I think there's, there are changes and, and I think California needs to do that as a whole. I mean, just look at retail and, and how things are zoned and, you know, and at the end of the day, the consumer I mean, what you're really talking about is what the consumer wants. Totally. Right. And they might not, they don't know that they can't visit, you know, the local, the small businesses, right? In in Napa, the small wineries. They just think, oh, they're not open. They're not big enough. They're not, they're not good enough, right? right. They're better in these other areas. That's why they're open. And the reality is, is the regulation is so fascinating. It's really interesting. You know, or that we've all left Napa somehow you know, that we've Mm -hmm. all been purchased by large conglomerates and you can't find boutique wine. So we need to move to some other 
destination to find those gems. And there's still so many up in Napa. And I just want to make sure that families who are multi-generational can continue to stay in this community and continue to keep business going and pass it on multi-generationally, because that is the heart and soul. I mean, Napa has become so many other things, but it's, you know, I mean, it's where I grew up. And so I really believe in providing a path for all of these families to stay in the business that they're passionate about. You don't do it for money. (laughs) I mean, some people do, but you know, it's definitely more of a passion project. And I say that only because, you know, you can lose a year's worth of revenue on, you know, the drop of a dime. I mean, we are so, it's very capital intensive and there are a lot of things that are working against it in terms of, if you wrote this as a business plan to marketing 101, your teacher would be like, uh, you're dumb, right? It's going to take you seven years to return revenue and blah, blah, blah. And it's capital intensive. Like, what are you doing? Go into tech. (laughs) Yeah. Do something else, but you're doing it. And also responsibility of your family. And I love that. It's a noble cause for sure. And you're also doing the vacation rental. I read about that. So you're, it's a farmhouse that you rent out. Yeah. So I like to think of it as more, one of the things that drives me in maintaining the business is that I wanted to put my own fingerprint on Mm -hmm. our business. So I've always wanted to innovate. I didn't want to do just what my father did, not because I wasn't proud, but because that was his vision. And Mm -hmm. it took me a little while to develop my own. But I think what is most impressive to me is you can get good wines anywhere. And almost every wine in Napa is going to be of a certain quality. So it's, you know, you're rarely going to be very disappointed with the availability of high quality product. So I want to create much more of an experience where people who are looking to maybe get out of the city, who are looking to understand farming and living that actual Napa lifestyle, which I've grown to realize is so precious and unique, Mm -hmm. especially during COVID, is that I want them to have the opportunity to learn about farming, learn about animals, learn about biology, learn about you know, ecosystems and how all of that works together. And that was really the inspiration behind the Oasis by Hoops, which is a regenerative farm. It's not a tasting experience. You can try wine here, but it's really meant to show you how animals and different crops and wine all function together in an agricultural community. It's not just about marble mausoleums. And with our farmhouse, what we're trying to do is take all of the produce that we grow and literally translate that to farm to table. So not just with the wine, but talking about these curated sort of pop-up experiences. And unfortunately, Napa does not allow us to do that. So a way that people can experience it, at least for now, is coming to my family home that I grew up in and renting it according to Napa regulations, And but live that lifestyle. So come and harvest from the garden you know, stay overnight, learn more about the winemaking process, maybe dip their toe into it with us. And so it's a more comprehensive, it's not just a vacation stay, it's an experience of introducing you to winemaking and farming in Napa. I love it. I want to go see it for sure. Yes, please. Uh, come check it out. Yeah, it sounds amazing. So where do people find out more about the brandy-ish experience, the Hoops Vineyard, and everything that you're doing? Right now, we are open at the Oasis by Hoops facility, and that is just south of Yontville, so phenomenal location. 
And of course, at our website, www.hoopsvineyard, with an E, <laughs> .com, we are hosting people where we can show them the gardens. We are outdoors, so we are totally COVID-friendly. You can meet our friendly animals. We have an animal rescue sanctuary here. We actually have our garden. We have a farmer's market on the weekends, and then you can try our wines before you taste, take them home. And then our vacation rental, hopefully, will be open you can rent it now, but we're having renovations, so it's spotty. But you can always contact me at info at hoopsvineyard.com, and we will definitely see if we can make that experience available. Unfortunately, a lot of the in-person events that we had planned, of course, for 2020, we were not able to execute. So we've transferred a good few of them online. We do virtual cooking classes, and we oftentimes send boxes of all of the produce that we're using for those classes. We send it to you if you register for the class, as well as the wines. So you can cook alongside us with our produce, even if we can't host you in person. I love it. I'm looking at your site right now. It looks amazing. So, And we do virtual wine tastings. So if you can't come visit us, we've been having a lot of fun doing virtual wine tastings where we can send you know, miniature packages, basically miniature format bottles of wine to your home if you want to entertain clients do team building activities, just drink wine with family all together via a virtual platform, we've been able to actually execute sending these little sampler packs out to everybody and engaging people online with me. I love it. Yeah. so I love it. That's so great. Well, I love everything about it and I wish you guys the best and hope 2021 is great for everybody, including you guys. And I just love your innovation. And I'll definitely be watching more for what you're doing. I think you're the perfect person to be dealing with a lot of this as craziness as it's been. And I love it. But definitely, everybody, if you're enjoying this podcast, definitely give Lindsay some great remarks and go visit the hoopsvineyard.com website for sure and check out what she's doing. And I can't wait for this to be complete as well. So I'm I'm very, very excited to taste exactly. So the end of 2021, you think that will be yeah. ready? And I think talking about it now is fun because I feel like consumers can sort of watch us through the process. So we'll, of course, on social media, be sharing our development, you know, yes. as it I love it. And of course, like now that we have another vintage to work with, I'm actually excited. You know, what will we change? What will we do? This is going to be an ongoing project in a fun way. Obviously, I don't love that it's born from devastation, but I do love that there is something kind of fun to play with, despite the fact that, you know, that it's happened this way. Yeah. I love it. I love your mindset and looking forward and and really recognizing that there's some things that you can do something about it. And sometimes you can't, right? And things are out of your control. So, well, thank you so much, Lindsay. And definitely very, very excited for the future for you. So thank you for checking in with everybody I real, with us and, and uh, have a great rest of the week. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for 
anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.